Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Trey, your new home. Oklahoma Christian University. Oklahoma now. Christian University. Yeah, congratulations. And I know you're in the midst of the move, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to jump in here and sub for Jay, who is away on vacation. I believe, uh, uh, I think he said, the Bahamas or something. So he's he's enjoying that, oh. and you're in the middle of a move. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I was in the mountains, so even better than the Bahamas. Well, that, well there you go. And and certainly, Jay uh, absolutely uh, deserves a vacation, has earned it. So, But uh, Jay, uh, wherever you are, uh, sailing away somewhere, uh, enjoy. <laughs> anyway, you know, in just a few days, President Trump will announce his pick to replace uh, Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. And we're not big on finalist speculation stuff. But of course, once we do know who the president's choice is, we'll be discussing that person in depth. But for now, what we do know is that no matter who President Trump chooses for the position, uh, both the left and the right are going to be pulling out all the stops in the confirmation fight. And for both sides, The big issue seems to be the possibility that Roe versus Wade could be overturned. And the focus looks like it's going to be on a small number of senators whose votes are going to be critical, given the fact that, you know, the Republicans only have that two vote advantage in the chamber, which drops to one if Senator John McCain isn't able to get there to vote. Though it's important to mention, of course, that in the event of a tie, Vice President Mike Pence would would cast that vote and presumably he would vote for the president's nominee there. Um, So, Trey, what do you see as the strategies developing here? And again, I don't think I mean, you know, we we know that there are some finalists, but essentially it's not like Donald Trump's going to go off the reservation and nominate some moderate or something like that. So I think, yeah, we can, no, I mean, yeah. he's he's already said, I mean, he's got a list. That's one of the things that got him elected. Uh, you know, online, we've been talking about that. That's probably been one of his he's he has been, in my opinion, more systematic about this SCOTUS pick and more on message probably than anything else he's done, which I think has given him a edge in this particular uh, if you want to call it a battle. Sure. This confirmation process. And and you're right to point out, Michael, that so in all honesty, we the Republican. Republicans have a single seat control, which means that both Dems and Republicans, as we know, because Pence, you know, this uh, as we were getting into the weekend, was meeting with some of the candidates and was also along with Trump making phone calls to some of our our key senators who are those kinds of cusp individuals in the Republican Party to see if they might be able to sway them. Uh, you know, specifically, we're thinking here like Susan Collins um, and to see if that, they, they can make that move. But I don't think that the Democrats have a really good play here. In all honesty, I think they're going to kind of try to take a position take on this. I would be really surprised if we have any Republicans who are going to defect, because I think defection in this case 
would be the kiss of electoral death. Um, I'm just not sure that there's going to be, I mean, it's going to be close, but I don't think it's going to be as exciting as a lot of the outlets are making it out to be. What do you think about that, Michael? Yeah, you know, I, I think certainly Susan Collins has been, and Lisa Murkowski as well, to a lesser extent. Murkowski, yes. Yeah. I've been in the news on this because Collins has, you know, publicly said, uh, expressed her discomfort with confirming anyone who would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. But but I think this kind of gets finessed in the way that, well, as long as the nominee makes sure he or she doesn't say, I will overturn Roe versus Wade, you know, and the president doesn't ask, kind of like a don't ask, don't tell sort of policy <laughs> for, for this type of thing. So, uh, you know, and, and so... Again, it's it's pretty clear that the the focus on the left is going to be put, putting a lot of pressure on Collins and Murkowski. One group, for instance, Demand Justice, which is a liberal group, they put together what they call what they say is a five million dollar campaign focusing on Maine and Alaska. Uh, and so, those are, if any Republican votes flip, it would be Collins or Murkowski. But but then again, it's also important to consider that on the left. There are also some vulnerable Democrats. Uh, there's a group called the Judicial Crisis Network, a conservative group. They're focusing on Democrats in states that Donald Trump won in 2016 who are facing reelection this year in 2018. And uh, to give you a sense, this group spent $10 million to support the confirmation of Gorsuch. And this is a much bigger deal than that. For sure, you know, and so uh, we're talking here about uh, the main people, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, and Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota. And, you know, I think it's a little more likely that one of those, one of those Democrats would flip to the Republicans than one of the two Republicans would flip to the the Democrats. Uh, So I don't know. What what do you think about that, Trey? I agree. I I think one of the things it's easy to forget, but the idea that you're going to have confirmation battles over SCOTUS picks is a relatively recent development. Um, As a matter of, I mean, it's, it doesn't start that many decades ago. And so it's going to be tough for Democrats. Like you point out a, the idea that Roe is going to get overturned is likely not going to be a major point coming up in Senate confirmation hearings, especially with a more conservative justice who is going to, at least in the way he describes his jurisprudence, to be talking about, look, I want to uphold precedent. I mean, that is the that's that is kind of the the standard conservative position. So to think that they're going to be able to make a big battle over that just seems weak to me, especially considering Roe isn't even the whole the standing case law now anyway. Uh, I think what will end up happening, I, I think if Democrats take too hard of a line on this, they're going to end up looking, they're going to get painted with the same kind of brush that Republicans did when they refused to take a look at a nominee under President Obama. And I, I don't know what's to be gained in this case because they're not going to be able to delay it. And you know, even if they kill one, somebody else is going to come down the line. They can't keep killing them indefinitely. Yeah. And, and there's no way they're delaying this until after, after the midterms. I mean, it's just, they just can't do that. Essentially. They just, I mean, uh, procedurally, they just won't they be able to do that. Yeah. So, you know, Mitch McConnell says there will be a vote this fall and I'm sure that Mitch McConnell's right about that. It'll be interesting to see how this affects the midterms. Certainly there are some on the right who are saying, I, I don't quite get the argument that this will somehow fire up the base on the right, I think it's a lot more likely 
that it's going to fire up the left. But, you know, who knows? Voters are crazy. We'll, 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 we'll see what happens. But I, I would expect that the when these hearings are going on, again, in the run-up to the midterms and the knowledge that President Trump is going to get his nominee, I think this is a lot more likely to fire up the left. And again, I kind of make the analogy, even though I don't necessarily agree that Roe versus Wade is going to be wholly overturned. You know, we saw what happened when Roe versus Wade was enacted in, in 73, and it led to a strong surge of activism on the right. And I think we're likely to see a, a sort of similar type of thing uh, with the, even the possibility of Roe versus Wade being unturned and, and a surge of greater activism on the left. So I think politically, my expectation is, be, is being that this will uh, help the left more than the right. But again, this is a, a ways off and, and we'll see what happens. I agree. I don't think there's any immediate change. As a matter of fact, I don't think for either the left or the right, there's going to be a significant shift over a Supreme Court nominee in the midterm election. You know, he's going to get uh, he or she almost deadly. He is going to get nominated. They're going to get confirmed. And by the time November rolls around, it's going to be a distant memory from the average voter. Yeah, for the average voter. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, and uh, I guess one thing before I move on from this, one thing that sort of that troubles me. I don't know. Uh, I guess one thing that bothers me a little bit about this is my baseline on Supreme Court nominees and presidential nominees in general is that as long as the person is not unfit in some very real way, I, I feel like advising consent to me basically means that the president gets his picks as long as they're not unqualified. Unqualified doesn't mean somebody who has different policy or ideological preferences than me. And, you know, you mentioned that this is a, you know, a a somewhat recent thing. It's certainly last, you know, few decades or now it's getting less and less recent as I'm getting older, but, and and, you (laughs) know, I I think a lot of people point to Bork. Yeah. Well, you know, and and people would, people, I guess would, would say to me, how can you say that? Because we're going to get people who, you know, have these these sort of policy preferences that you don't like. And yes, I understand that, but I feel like it works both ways. You know, I want the people who have my policy preferences to get confirmed. And this is why we have elections, you know, and, and elections have consequences and they should have consequences. And so, I mean, even though I'm sure I'm not going to like on policy and on judicial uh, judicial viewpoint, whoever President Trump picks, ultimately, I feel like he gets his pick as long as that person isn't qualified. And if I were, I've said this before, if I were voting, I would have to vote to confirm that pick because that's how I understand the system should work. And and there would be a political price to pay for that, which is probably one of the many reasons why I'm not and will never be a United States senator. <laughs> well, I can't disagree with you on that front. I, I don't think anybody's going to be lining up to pick either one of us because yeah. every week we do the exact opposite of what you should do, which is give some uh, deliberate analysis (laughs) on issues that can be listened to in the future. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, again, I'm sure we'll have, we'll come back to this certainly next week after President Trump names his nominee and then throughout the confirmation process. All right. Well, moving on, you know, it was a long time coming, but uh, the, EPA administrator, I should say scandal-plagued EPA administrator because, you know, Scott Pruitt, yeah, he was finally forced out. I mean, Pruitt was seen by conservatives, certainly, as 
exactly the sort of strong, deregulatory-minded, industry-friendly presence that was needed at the agency. Now, liberals, on the other hand, viewed him as being essentially in the pocket of the industries he's supposed to be regulating and certainly no friend to the environment. Uh, But despite Pruitt being exactly what conservatives, really from Donald Trump on down, wanted in running the agency, uh, those mounting scandals ended up being too much of a distraction in the end. I mean, at the time of his resignation, Pruitt was the subject of more than a dozen different federal inquiries, uh, which is which is crazy. Um, so he'll be replaced by his top deputy, Andrew Wheeler, until a successor is named and then confirmed by the Senate. So, Trey, uh, what do you think about Pruitt's resignation and how it might affect the EPA going forward? Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating to me. So on the left, you know, okay, I get that Pruitt is not doing the things that you're going to want, but it's not as if you're going to get suddenly get some particularly eco-conscious, friendly, no. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, EPA head. And so what's fascinating about it on this front, at least, is I mean, Pruitt, he was doing the stuff that Trump wanted, everybody else wanted, and that's the reason he stuck around so long. If he could just have stopped shuffling money around weird, <laughs> you know, uh, building expensive furniture, dealing with lobbyists in certain ways, he would have been fine. I mean, it seems to me that the Pruitt going away, it has a very few implications for the EPA itself, but I think it has some larger implications for the way that Trump has handled his administration, which is he has not carefully picked individuals. I mean, how many people are going to end up resigning uh, either because of outright scandals in the case of uh, Pruitt or his uh, communications director, the stream of communications directors he's had. Um, I think it has bigger implications for kind of this Trump management style. I think it'll be something that we'll study in the future as we get more information about it. But I really think that's what's the most interesting piece here. I don't really think it changes much with the agency, and I don't think it really buys any either party any kind of political points. Because again, nobody's going to vote in the midterm election about whether or not Pruitt's in the EPA. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And I think when we do study this management style in the future, we'll conclude that management by chaos is maybe not the best way to run the United States government. But <laughs> but more specifically than that, I think another lesson is bringing in outsiders without a lot of federal government experience is a very uh, iffy, very potentially hazardous thing. I mean, certainly, you know, Scott Pruitt did have experience in Oklahoma state government, but he came in clearly not understanding that the, the, the spot, the way the spotlight would be on him and that there are certain things you can and cannot do as, you know, a, a, a top federal government official. Now, his likely success, well, I don't know if Wheeler's going to be his, uh, the nominee for, for the permanent position, but, you know, Wheeler's a very different person. I mean, he uh, is much more of a federal government insider. He's got more experience. He doesn't have the ethics issues. He's the sort of person who's going to essentially carry on the exact same policies as Scott Pruitt uh, did, probably much more effectively because he's not going to be distracted by the scandal of the, the, the week, essentially. So in terms of I mean, if you're if you're a conservative, I would think in many instances, this is a very good thing because now the EPA can get about with its business of essentially 
more properly, I guess the conservative way to put it would be more properly balancing the needs of the economy and business with the environment, or as people on my side would put it, can uh, keep on, you know, attempting to destroy the environment for the sake of big business lobbyists, <laughs> essentially, which uh, I do think is a little closer to the truth. But anyway, um, you know, of course, I should point out that uh, Wheeler was confirmed for his deputy position. It was 53 to 45. He'll need to be reconfirmed if he is in fact nominated and whoever's nominated, I think it's going to be largely a party line confirmation vote essentially with maybe one or two Democrats, Joe Manchin, West Virginia being, you know, one potential who might flip the other way, that sort of thing. So uh, uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'd really add, Michael, is, is, you know, you talk about how this is an example potentially of the downfall of outsiders. And, and I've thought about this and I've read about this a lot. And in some ways, I honestly think that Pruitt, he's an example. I don't think that outsiders per se are a bad plan. I think this is what you have when you have individuals with poor character. So I, I think Pruitt and others, you know, you can have outsiders who are humble about the idea that they have things to learn they have to do. But obviously, Pruitt was not that kind of guy. And that's not, you know, that kind of character is not the kind of thing that has been a priority in the Trump administration. And, and so I think in some ways, this is, this is an example of character issues. I mean, you can be an outsider and recognize you have things to learn, or you can be Scott Pruitt and say, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want to do because that's what I do. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great point. And part of the problem, I would think, is that when the president is a man of poor character, um, mm -hmm. that makes a real. And I'm this. I'm not talking about policy or anything like that. I mean, there are there are reasonable people of good character who can have very different views from me on immigration and abortion and all kinds of things. I mean, you know, I've said before, there are plenty of Republicans who are, I believe, are men and women of extremely high character, but Donald Trump is not one of those people. And I can't imagine how anyone could actually argue the the other way on that. Um, anyway. And we have agreement there as we've as our listeners well know. <laughs> well, one, one thing I should point out about uh, about Andrew Wheeler, just to give a sense of who he is, uh, he had been a lobbyist for quite a long period of time. And while he was a lobbyist, his best paying client was a coal company. Um, and in fact, uh, <laughs> Murray Energy, they paid him, uh, they paid his firm, I'm sorry, $300,000 or more every year from 2009 through 2017. So uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, Andrew Wheeler will continue on in the footsteps of Scott Pruitt, just without the scandals. Uh, all right. Well, before I move on, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. We have a bunch of them this week. Uh, let me see. There's Ryan, Stephen, Peg, uh, As Aslam. I hope you got that right. Sorry if I didn't. Stephen and Alex. Uh, all Patreon continuing supporters on Patreon. I'll show you, I should mention Alex is actually a former student of mine. Uh, he uh, he's a conservative, and I've his his thoughtful perspectives have always I thought been kind of a healthy addition to class debate. So uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, and a number of our supporters this week wrote in. Uh, Ryan wrote, I've been listening since you had Dan Carlin on, which was quite a while ago actually. He said I figured I'd chip in since I listen to you guys weekly and. Don't worry, Jay. I won't tell anyone that you are secretly a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> he hides it well. Uh, anyway, uh, oh. uh, let's see. Steven says, thanks for the genteel and informative podcast. How about that? Genteel, Trey. I like I'll that. I'll take that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Peg wrote in to say, 
Woohoo! Last child graduated from college this spring, so now I get to use those dollars in other ways. Priority is the politics, guys. I'm so grateful for the tremendous work you profs do. And Jay, I'm also very partial to you, Justice Warriors. <laughs> Thank you so much. Jay's really getting it. Thank you so much for illuminating calmer, more comprehensive perspectives and for entertaining my questions and comments. I talk about your page and podcast every opportunity and know I've turned a few people onto the politics guys, although I still think you need a female perspective. Best wishes always. Well, well, thank you, Peg. I appreciate that. Um, let's see. Steven says, hi, guys. Thank you for your civil debates. I teach federal government in Texas at Collin College. I use your webcast in multiple areas of my class. I appreciate your level of civility in such uncivil times. So it's nice to know that we're being, you know, I use, I use the podcast sometimes as well in certain elements of, of my classes. I use interviews before. It's nice to hear that other people are finding it useful in, in that setting. So that's pretty cool, I think. All right. Well, uh, you know, when you become a supporter of the show, it's not only just helping us keep the show going, which is obviously really important, but also you get access to our special supporters only after show uh, last week on the supporters show, Jay and I talked about uh, that recent spate of public shaming of Trump administration officials, Harley Davidson's announcement that it's going to be moving some production overseas because of EU retaliation for president Trump's tariffs and also some news on climate science, which has Jay had Jay sort of hopeful and has me a little bit skeptical. But anyway, this week we also have some great stuff lined up for you as well. So if you do want to make a make a pledge of support to this show, we would appreciate it. Just go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link or politicsguys.com and then you can just click on support or any of the support the Patreon PayPal icons. Thanks so much. All right, moving on, the trade war threat that some people I think uh, Jay was one of these people we're hoping was just kind of a tough, unconventional Trump negotiating tactic. Well, it's starting to look less like a tactic and more like a policy. Uh, this week, U.S. Customs officers began imposing tariffs of $34 billion on Chinese goods, and the Chinese quickly retaliated. Now, President Trump has earlier said that if the Chinese did in fact retaliate, he was prepared to levy an additional $200 billion in tariffs on Chinese imports. Uh, now, the U.S. tariffs are focused on industrial products, which means that consumers aren't likely to see the effects right away. But already what we're seeing right away is that supply chains are being disrupted, investments being hurt, and a lot of industry groups in the U.S. are clearly expressing their displeasure with this. You know, there's definitely broad agreement that the Chinese are doing some stuff with trade that is not okay. Uh, discriminatory and unfair trade practices, especially involving licensing and intellectual property. But what there does seem to be bipartisan agreement on, largely, is that the administration's response is just not the way to deal with this particular problem. So I guess the first question, Trey, I mean, I know you're, you're more of a free trader even than I am. So, um, but what's your sense of what the administration hopes to accomplish here? Because obviously, you know, they don't want, their goal isn't to tank the markets, disrupt supply change, uh, lower investment and hurt the economy. So what's, what's, the, what's the end game here? Why are they doing this, do you think? bad economic understanding hard stop period um 
Yeah, the, we've talked about this on the show a couple of times. You, you and I have not had the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, and you're right, you know, Jay and others were kind of holding out this hope that this was just kind of a vague threat. And I have been the voice saying, you know, no, this is this is a bad, <laughs> yeah. this is a bad plan. Um, and as you know, yeah, right now, the things that are getting targeted in that 34 billion worth of goods, you know, they were originally going to target things like television and flat screen panels, and they backed away from that. But when you take a look at the list, it includes things like semiconductors and plastics. So it is not going to take long before your, you know, your Samsung phone is going to cost a heck of a lot more because you know where all those semiconductors are made. It's not here in the United States. Um, and that's going to, so, you know, it's easy to say in the short term, hey, this isn't going to have a consumer impact, but these items that have been picked, they, it will not take long for this to come downstream to consumers, especially considering, uh, you know, China's already had that 400 billion hit back, which means that Trump has promised he's going to have another hit back, which means that China would do that. So here's the economic problem. Fundamentally speaking, I recognize that we have some intellectual property threats, but we actually have institutions to deal with this. We just haven't used them effectively. So what we're instead doing is we've created an assumption that trade is a zero-sum game. And it's frustrating because last election cycle, we had Bernie Sanders supporters on the left and we had Trump supporters on the right, all suggesting that if we build giant trade barrier walls, that the average person is going to be better. Well. There is nothing more economically clear than the fact that on the whole, right, we can even have some arguments between left and right about, you know, how this should go down. But on the whole, there's going to be general broad agreement um, among economists that what you're actually doing when you build those walls is is you are lowering the standard of living. You increase the amount of uh, consumer and non-consumer goods. And as a result, you have people's purchasing power going a whole lot less far. And you don't have to look very far. I mean, take a look. You know, India, for example, is a great uh, example for this. They wanted to do the import substitution, the ISI. And that was the idea was you're going to have these barriers so that industry can grow. It didn't work. It consistently hasn't worked. And it hasn't worked forever. And so my long-term prediction about this is simply that Trump is going to continue to impose uh, hits on China. China is going to China won't actually be able to have as many hits on us. So they'll eventually have to start doing some non-tariff, um, some non-tariff uh, barriers in order to try to continue to hit back. But that's not any significantly better for the average person, the company, or the consumer. And so I think we're in the midst of a very dangerous circumstance, both for the United States and for uh, global trade in general. And this is one of the things that, you know, I'm just going to say it, us libertarians, uh, you know, le- uh, you know, we're kind of our, our Republican libertarians have been saying for a long time is you start getting comfortable with these trade barriers and this is what happens. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, I, I absolutely agree. And it's so bizarre to me that that mercantilism essentially is making a, yes. a comeback. This this I mean, of course, that was based that philosophy was based on the belief that trade is a zero sum game. And it's just simply we have over two centuries of experience and evidence to tell us that that's just not true. It has a certain surface emotive nationalist sort of appeal, but we know it's just wrong. So I, I was trying to think about how the most the most compelling case I could make for the Trump administration doing this, just because it's so hard for me to wrap my head around this. So here's what I've come up with. 
And I've heard this kind of bits and pieces of from various administration officials. I think the thinking is among the more sophisticated, rational type of people who may or may not concern the president. I honestly don't know what goes on in, in that man's head. But I think the thinking is that, okay, we have a really solid economy right now. If we're going to start a trade war, this is the best time to do it because we have more reserves to draw on, essentially. And the thinking, I think I've used this analogy last week and, and maybe before, is that this is sort of a, a game of chicken. Uh, Trump is hoping that uh, the EU, that China blink before the U.S. does, before their pain is going to be worse than our pain, essentially. And then that will allow us to basically reset our trade with the rest of the world on more favorable terms to the U.S. I'm, I, I think that's the thinking behind this. But, but the problem here, a couple of problems. Number one, there aren't any ongoing negotiations with China on trade. Which So if you're going to impose tariffs or threaten to impose more, it makes a lot more sense to do that in the context of negotiations. So you can, you know, if you're going to do these things, you can stop the bleeding and, and get something done with or have have the threat that says if you end a then these tariffs go away yes and 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 then the problem i think with tariffs first and talks later which seems to be what the president is choosing to doing is that nobody wants to back down or look weak i mean it's pretty clear in a lot of eu countries that there there's strong public support for standing up to president trump uh, in china i mean when you're an authoritarian country you don't even have to really worry about that so I just, yeah, you know, Donald Trump said trade wars are, are, are easy to win, and he's just wrong about this. Uh, I feel like this man who prides himself on being a great deal maker has essentially backed the United States into a corner. And, and of all the awful things that I think have come out of his presidency policy-wise, this could be potentially uh, of the worst. I agree. And you, I, don't, I, I actually don't place all the blame for this with Trump, I place this, you know, voters have consistently moved away from economic openness for a variety of, I think, wrong reasons. And that's why we had a a number, you know, two thirds of our viable candidates espousing a form of mercantilism. And I, I, this is, this is an uncomfortable position to have to be in, but to say, look, this is what voters wanted. But voters are simply wrong, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, you know uh, uh, the uh, Brian Brian Kaplan, economist uh, George Mason, who who I talked to a while ago, actually has a whole book on that. He calls it the myth of the rational voter. It's a great book, and that's one of the things he talks about is people's just wrong beliefs on free trade. And and you know we should point out it makes sense why the average, not really involved politically person would think that because the benefits of free trade tend to be smaller and spread out widely. So the fact that, for instance, the, uh, you know, the, the, the laptop you buy is say a hundred dollars less than it would be otherwise because of free trade, that sort of thing. That's a smaller thing as opposed to, but you know, everyone enjoys that as opposed to, you know, when you're out of work because businesses have moved overseas to take advantage of lower labor costs and that sort of thing. Well, that's a smaller group it affects, but it affects you 
much, you know, much more uh, in a much stronger way. And that's the sort of thing that actually gets covered by the news as opposed to, hey, laptops cheaper because of free trade. That's not a news story, but uh, plant moving overseas, that is a news story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're right. The public's wrong about this, but it's understandable why they would think that. And we just haven't done a very good job of, of educating them, though. And this is something I've heard in some of your arguments with Ken. And while I don't agree entirely with Ken on this, I do think he has a point that that uh, certainly some economists are now reevaluating to a certain extent their complete enthusiasm for free trade, suggesting that, well, uh, we thought that there would be a greater number of winners and a smaller number of losers. And while still we feel that on balance, there's no question that free trade is a net benefit. We might have been a little wrong in our calculations of who's going to be, as they sometimes call it, disrupted uh, by mm -hmm. free trade. And also in this country, we've done a crummy job compared to the rest of the OECD, the rest of the developed world, in terms of putting resources into uh, worker re-education, uh, retraining, that sort of thing. We don't do very much of that at all. And I think that's a big problem, is if you're going to have these disrupted industries and people have no place to go and don't have resources to fall back on, that's going to create a problem. No, and I mean, you're right. Ken and I have had this argument before, but you know, when we when you start talking about all out trade wars, we're no longer having a conversation about the degree to which we should have openness and but to the question about this kind of zero sum game of do we have any openness or you know at all yeah um and and so i mean i I think I wish that we could be having that conversation <laughs> you know uh, which was i mean that was basically what was happening and this is ironic in some ways under president obama right because we were having a conversation about how much more openness we wanted uh with asia more generally right and that was being attacked from both the left and the right uh he you know he got flanked on that one uh significantly yeah. uh so i agree with you i think that we could have some conversations and and like ken and i have i think that we just we probably have some disagreements you know at this juncture that's a kind of a moot point because we all end up being in the same boat saying, wait a second, let's think about openness. Let's, you know, let's, this is not a complete zero. This is not a zero sum yeah, game. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I am unfortunately uh, fairly certain that there will be much more on this and it does not look like it's going to go in a direction that either you or I uh, w would favor, Trey. Uh, Buy your iPads now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on. You know, there have been more developments this week on the immigration front. Uh, first, uh, U.S. District Judge James Bosberg ordered the government to either immediately release or give hearings to the more than 1,000 asylum seekers, uh, many, many of whom have been detained for months and in some cases even years without having their claim reviewed. And Judge, Bo Judge Bosberg said that the government is ignoring essentially its own policy, which states that asylum applicants with a credible fear of persecution must be either given a hearing in seven days or released. And in addition to this, he pointed to a 2009 Homeland Security policy that's still in effect that states that the federal government must consider whether an asylum seeker poses a flight risk on a case-by-case -case basis, which the administration has clearly not been doing. Now, also, in addition to this, on Friday, another federal judge, Dana Sabro, who had previously ordered the quick reunification of parents and children, especially children age five and under. And we talked about this on last week's show. 
he heard arguments from government officials asking for an extension to this order. Um, now, the government admitted when they were making this argument that they basically lost track of the parents of 38 of the migrant children they're currently holding. Uh, they know that 19 were deported and 19 are presumably somewhere in the United States, but that's all they know. Uh, the, the judge agreed to extend the deadline for the reunification of parents and those youngest children, which currently was set for July 10th, but only if the government provides a list of all the detained children age five and under and the status of their parents. And then there's going to be another meeting again on Monday for an update on the government's progress on this. And, and to me, this all goes back once again to the Trump administration's choice to implement a zero tolerance policy, which seems to work on a presumption that asylum seekers don't have credible claims. And, and I think it's also based on a belief that all undocumented immigrants must be physically detained, despite the fact that suitable facilities aren't available to detain and everyone, not even close, despite the cost, and despite a number of studies that find alternatives to detention are you know, extremely effective, as well as less expensive and more humane. Uh, now, Trey, I've said a bunch of times before, this entire mess, to me, is a display of colossal incompetence and callousness. Uh, what do you think? Well, this is a difficult one because I think that what we were just talking about, uh, trade policy and immigration, are two sides of the same coin. So it is not surprising to me, I mean, if you don't want to trade with the rest of the world, you definitely don't want other people here. Uh, these are policies that have long historically gone hand in hand. And so I agree with you that I think what we have here is a, a hard line position. This is zero tolerance policy. It has a significant number of problems, but I don't think that that's the focus uh, for many people. And as a matter of fact, this is one of the things that I think those on the left have misunderstood by giving their support to anti-trade practice, you know, anti-trade policies. They are inching closer to anti-immigration policies. When you when you trade openly with people, that means you're having dialogue and conversation with them. And when you want to cut those off. It's not a large philosophic leap to say, well, we don't want those people here either. Because if it's a zero-sum game for money, then it sure as heck is a zero-sum game when it comes to people living in your country. Yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting point, but, but that, that really tracks to me with a lot of what I think the president's logic seems to be on this and that, and that all of international relations and all the politics is just a series of zero sum games. And so I hadn't thought about it that way, but, but I see, I see what you're saying here. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, there's another thing I wanted to get your, your take on. There are some people who are arguing that, well, the administration's goal obviously is to get fewer people to come into the country. I would say it seems pretty clearly both illegally and legally. And so in that sense, maybe then you know, all of these horrible stories about separations and pictures of people in cages and all that sort of thing, that might actually be what they want on some level. Now, let me explain before people just go, oh, my God, Mike, you're, you're making these crazy claims. I'm not saying that they're, they're cruel, heartless bastards who want children to suffer. 
I think the, the rationale, the rationalization, which I don't buy, would be, you know, we're going to impose some pain on a smaller group of people so that we can protect our borders in the future and create a better, uh, a better, safer country for more Americans in the future. Now, I think that's, that's re- incredibly flawed logic, but I think that's how I'm guessing that they justify it to themselves because there's nobody who's saying, yes, let's put, let's separate little kids from their parents because we like to have kids separated from their parents crying and miserable. I mean, you know, maybe there are a few people like that, but they're, they're warped individuals and that's, you know, by far not, not the norm, certainly. I, t- I totally agree with you. You're right. Because I mean, I, I think that from the right, from the administrative point of view, the administration's point of view, you know, you have somebody coming across the border that makes them in, in, immediately a criminal. And what do you do with criminals? I mean, you, you don't let the felon take the kids into jail with them, right? Or into prison. Uh, and so I think that is the that is the mind frame the the mindset here. You're absolutely I, I agree. And and you know again I I, I want to emphasize that I'm not trying to make excuses for the administration. I'm just trying to sort of think about how they must think about these things because you know it's one of the things we try to do on the show here is let's not assume that the other side is you know twisting their handlebar mustache and and cackling <laughs> as they say how can i impose pain on on children you know that kind of thing so um you know I, there's a there's a second development this week also in immigration that's the growth in the so-called abolish ice movement i mean uh, uh you know we've seen senators and both you know presidential aspirants as well elizabeth warren and kamala harris they've called for the agency to be abolished there have been two house democrats that say they're going to introduce actual legislation to abolish the agency and on this point you know i get the frustration i get the anger this has been well, I'd use a certain term if this weren't a clean show, uh, but that's what it's been. Um, <laughs> a cluster, fill in the blank. But, you know, the problem to me is not, well, there are a couple of reasons why I think abolish ICE is not a good response. First, I don't think ICE is the problem. The, the problem, in my view, is the decision by President Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions to implement this zero tolerance immigration policy. A policy choice that has been uh, looked at and not chosen by both Republican and Democratic administrations in the past. Second, abolish ICE makes it sound like people are calling for no immigration enforcement. Now, that, of course, is not true if you listen to their full statements, but it's a perception that, uh, that plays right into the hands of President Trump and people on the right who falsely claim that Democrats favor open borders, having drug gangs and traffickers come in and so forth. And that's nobody's position, essentially. But it makes it so easy to caricature with that sort of thing. So I think that's one of these positions that is kind of a sounds good to the true believers and preaching to the choir and so forth, but does more damage than good and also just won't address the fundamental problem, which is not, which is not the agency, but the policy they're being asked to implement. Uh, what, what do you think, Trey? Yeah, you're right. I mean, this week we even had uh, had somebody climbing the Statue of Liberty to basically have a big publicity stunt over abolishing ICE after uh, Warren had talked. By the way, I'm not suggesting that Warren was was doing this. <laughs> just right. Up. Um, There's a visual, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those things, they just happen to happen uh, near each other. Um, no causality. Uh, you know, I, I think you're right. The, the problem here is that, so let's, 
this is a chance for Democrats to have a real, we're talking about things like what could maybe move on a midterm election. Here's a real possibility for having a a midterm uh, position. And instead, I think you're right that they're squandering it on calling for immigrations and custom enforcement to be abolished. Because what does that effectively mean? Because if you haven't changed the underlying policy, well, that means just some other agency is going to end up getting tasked with carrying that out. <laughs> so I, what I would really like to see is I think this is a chance for Democrats. And I recognize, you know, on the website and other places we've talked about this, I recognize that I have an extreme position, listeners, right? So I, I, am, I think that people should be able to move as freely um, as capital can move. But I rec- again, I, I recognize that's not a position of either the major political parties or any, any of the third parties for that matter. Um, but be that as it may, this is still a chance for Democrats to say, look, the policy that needs to change here is that we need to have, you know, an accepting and understanding and a rational border. You know, we want to have good immigration. We want to have a policy that encourages people to immigrate. And if they would make those, I mean, that's a much more difficult position to attack than, you know, Pence coming out the other day against Warren and saying, look, all these spurious attacks got to stop because they're just harming and well he has a point if that's but that's not really what they mean so i agree with you yeah but and i and i get the political imperatives here because more and more we see that you know back in the day it used to be the strategy used to be uh secure your base and then and then run toward the middle and get those moderates but let that you know that's less and less true and now the strategy it seems to be on on the left that the strongest presidential contenders are people who are you know not you know, really centrist or anything like that. And I think fundamentally that that's a, that's a flawed position to take. And some people will point out to me, well, Hillary Clinton was kind of a centrist and look what happened. It's like, well, yeah, Hillary Clinton was just a, a horrifically bad candidate with just more baggage, negative baggage and practically anyone else in the Democratic Party. So I don't think that's a really good example of what a reasonable centrist can do. But, you know, I, I unfortunately think this is the way our politics is, you know, is going. And that's why you see people jumping on these positions, even though I think they're just going to do more to, to separate us rather than bring us together. Thank you for pointing that out, because I have I have grown tired of the Hillary Clinton is the paradigm of centrism issue. <laughs> uh, yes. So. So, yeah. Oh, well. But uh, uh, but anyway, uh, let's uh, move on to, uh, well, you know, the Fourth of July was just a few days ago. And we have still I still have some people firing off late fireworks, I guess, because, you know, the Wednesday thing, you know, everyone had some spare fireworks or something. I don't know. My dogs are going crazy. But anyway, you know, if you're an American politician, you typically spend the Fourth of July at some hometown parade or something, shaking hands, kissing babies, eating hot dogs, you know, just just basically being as patriotic as you possibly can be, right? That's that's the standard playbook for a long time. But this year, eight Republican U.S. senators to try, try, decided they'd do something different. They decided they would spend their 4th of July in Moscow. <laughs> now, before they left, they expressed the hope that they could, you know, talk with Russian President Vladimir Putin, and they said, we will talk tough. Well, Putin never showed, and once they were they were in Russia, they basically turned into teddy bears. Uh, and they said, "Well, we're here to strive for a better relationship, and not to accuse Russia of this or that or so forth." Which is the exact words of she- Senator Richard Shelby, who was the leader of the delegation. 
Now, the senators were were pretty roundly mocked on Russian state TV for this, as well as uh, here in in the United States, and rightly so, I would say. Uh, What do you think of this, Trey? Well, I mean, this is basically the lead up to what's going to be the big show next week. And I'm sure we'll have to end up talking about this, which is, you know, Trump's going to stop over. And there's such fascinating uh, nonverbal rhetoric happening here. You got Trump, you got the senators coming over. Then you're going to have Trump stopping over in NATO effectively for a NATO summit in Brussels before he's then going to head over and talk with the, you know, the original anti-NATO himself, yeah. <laughs> Russian President Vladimir Putin on July 16 for a one-on-one. You know, this... <laughs> well, you know, did you ever think, I certainly, I, I never certainly ever visualized a future where the Republican Party would be the essentially uh, apologists for Russia. That just, that just so does not track with the last 50, 60 years or more of U.S. political history. It's just bizarre how essentially now partisanship has come to override even what I thought were the strongest, most... The base issue. Yeah, you know, that's just so very bizarre to think of the, the GOP as the pro-Russia policy. And, and, you know, I think this is, you know, part of this, certainly, you know, you're right about that. I certainly have my concerns about the, the, the summit on, on, in Helsinki there. Uh, you know, one thing in terms of the things they're going to be talking about, I think one thing is going to be Iran's role in Syria, which obviously is a big concern to Israel, which is, you know, obviously the U.S.'s closest ally in the region. And just for people, the complex geopolitics of this, right? I mean, Russia is a big backer of the Syrian government. They're an ally of of Iran. And they have become really, I would argue, the major power broker in the Middle East in recent years, which I would say is due to a series of just catastrophically awful U.S. foreign policy decisions from both the Bush and the Obama administration, really, uh, that date back to the invasion of Iraq. That's a whole nother discussion, but that is, I think, the present that we are faced with, you know? And so it remains to be seen how much influence Russia will have on Iran to, you know, to help out with that. But I think if there's going to be any sort of a, what they call deliverable, it's probably going to be related to that in some way, some sort of an agreement, and who knows if Iran's going to actually honor it or if it's just going to be an agreement to talk more or something like that. But I think they want something specific to come out of this, especially given what didn't come out of the uh, summit with um, uh, Kim Jong Un. In uh, in North Korea, where a lot of people, including on you know on the right, uh, George Will wrote this column, this the conservative columnist saying, you know, if I were Vladimir Putin, essentially, I'd want to meet with Trump too, because when he met with Kim, he got completely rolled. He agreed to give up some stuff and give this guy legitimacy, and in return, he got uh, you know, we got nothing basically. Yeah. You know, now it looks like North Korea has actually ramped up some production on you know on nuclear materials and so forth, and and. and you know, that's, I think, a very real concern because, you know, we know that Vladimir Putin is a cagey, smart, cool guy with vast experience in these things. And, you know, you compare that with President Trump's lack of experience, his impulsivity, his susceptibility to flattery, his overconfidence, 
his lack of interest in preparing for these things. This is like a this is like an unfair fight, essentially. If they meet one on one, God only knows what Donald Trump will say or do or agree to or something like that, which is why I think it would be really nice if Mike Pompeo or someone were in the room with this guy. Well, you know, in all honesty, I, you know, Trump, he's going to say what he's going to say. He's going to do what he's going to do. And that's not, I think, the worst part about this. The worst part about this is this one to this this punch where you're basically giving Putin priority over your NATO allies. That's the fundamental problem here, because, you know, Trump might say something to Putin and, you know, we would all gasp and collect the poor. But is anything going to come of that? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, but what, what I think is a lasting damage is this idea that you have close trade and military allies, and you're basically going to short them both uh, in appearance and in policy to the favor of, of Putin. And, and, and even pragmatically, you know, if I was in the Trump staff, I would be jumping up and down and shouting and saying, wait a second, the last thing we want to do is to be continuing to have a bunch of pictures. You and Putin shaking hands is going to be the worst internet meme in the history. It it could go perfectly. It's going to be the worst meme in the history of mankind, given the context of what's going on with the election. It it baffles me. I think, again, trying to get inside the head of, of, of the president, any president is always a, a dangerous sort of thing. But I guess my thinking is that he feels like nobody is a good enough friend to the United States. Everything is unfair. I've never seen a president use the word unfair more than, than Donald Trump does. And it just reminds me of some six-year-old throwing a tantrum on the playground or something like that. But that's another visual you don't necessarily need. Uh, but, but that he feels like he can push more with our allies because they're not going anywhere. They need us. And so the correct approach to make them better friends more responsive to us is to be hard on them. Whereas the people who are avowed enemies, the correct approach is to talk more with them. And so I think maybe that's the logic. Now, some other folks, you know, Ken has kind of almost kind of argued this and and other folks have as well saying that, no, this would just suggest that Donald Trump is for whatever reason, seems to be interested in actually following the foreign policy lead of Vladimir Putin in Russia for reasons that might be tied up with campaign things. They might be tied up with all the weird, shady financing things that Donald Trump's organization has gotten with from Russian financing after he couldn't get more legitimate financing for some things and so forth. And I don't know how much of that may or may not be true. I guess we'll maybe we'll find out one day to a certain extent. But uh, I'm, I'm trying again to not jump to what are the most sort of disturbing views on this. And by the way, I should mention for listeners who are interested in hearing sort of the worst case scary scenario on this, on uh, the, the Ezra Klein show, he recently had on someone from the Lawfare blog about kind of what we know about the Russia investigation and these ties and so forth. It, it's emphatically, tremendously biased. But if you want kind of the most scary picture of all this stuff, for some reason, I don't know, you just want to hear that, go ahead and listen to that. I I tried to listen to part of it. It both freaked me out and made me shake my head because I was thinking you should have somebody who's not quite as clearly biased on this. But anyway, we we, we will see. I, I certainly, I guess part of this is me hoping that people like that and can, that they're not right in the end, because 
the, the awful things that it says for the awful implications of that. Maybe I just can't handle that. I don't know, but but I certainly, I guess that's where I am on that. At least on the optimistic side, uh, Mike, the, the thing is, I mean, he, he met with North Korea for no other reason, reason than stupidity. So, <laughs> Well, see, you know, and I go back to people talk about motives and so forth, and I always go back to Occam's razor, you know, and I try to think, what's the simplest explanation for this? And And for me, the simplest explanation is that this is a person throughout his entire life has been driven by kind of emotion and this kind of chip on his shoulder feel and, and pushing back against people who say you shouldn't do this. And so that's kind of what I take it. Maybe there are deep, dark motives behind the scenes, but I feel a lot less confident speculating about that than I do about what seemed to me to be stable personality characteristics over literally decades. So that's kind of what I go with. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for this week's show. But, you know, before we go, I want to let everyone know that this week on Politics Plus, I'm talking to former Obama and Trump administration White House stenographer. Yes, that's right. Stenographer. They still have them. Uh, Beck Dory Stein about you know, the things she saw and learned behind the scenes. Uh, she was in the Obama administration for a bit over four years, I believe. And she also stayed on for a little bit under President Trump. And as you can imagine, she's got some really interesting stories. I had a really good time talking to her. Yeah. And that'll come out on, on Monday. And if you're interested, you can find politics plus well, pretty much wherever you find the politics guys. Uh, also the website is politicsplus.us. And also in a few minutes, uh, Trey and I, we're going to be recording our supporters exclusive after show. And I think today we'll be getting into the Trump administration's reversal of an Obama era guideline to schools about considering race and admissions decisions and also a lawsuit over a new citizenship question that the Trump administration wants to add to the census. So if you're a supporter, all that's going to be waiting for you by the time you hear this. And if you're not a supporter and you'd like to check it out, just go to politicsguys.com support. That's a direct link or politicsguys.com and click on the uh, support thing in the menu or the PayPal or Patreon links. So that is it for us for right now. Again, uh, subscribing to the show is a big help as the sharing episodes. So we would appreciate it if you could do that as well as leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. And if you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, that's mail at politicsguys.com and, and our Facebook page. We've had a, just a bunch of great discussions uh, lately, wouldn't you mm -hmm. say, Trey? I mean, it's been some really good stuff. And that's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Trey Carson, Jay Orndorff. Uh, Jay Orndorff. Wow. <laughs> My God, I need more coffee. How about Jay Carson and Trey Orndorff and Bruce Johnson? Okay, Mike, take a minute. Today's show is produced by me, Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.